Borwin is the executive director of the Super Bowl Breakfast. He's also the chief ambassador officer for Athletes in Action. Um, he is a football player himself. He played for the UCLA Bruins. I don't know if we've got any Bruins fans present today. One. All right. Uh, you guys know I'm, I'm, a, I'm a UCI guy, so I was an anteater. We're not really, uh, we're not too proud of our mascot. Um, but, but he had a stint in the NFL, and uh, you're going to hear today, he, he's a good man who loves Jesus, and he can bring the word of God with fire. You know, I was, I was at a Christian business network meeting, and, um, and I'm like, you know, I mean, I, I know Corin at this point. I thought, man, how is he going to speak to these people? And he just brought the fire. And so I know you're going to get blessed today. Give a warm Awaken Las Vegas welcome to Corwin Anthony. Thanks, bro. Don't you love those introductions that set you up way, way higher than you really should want to be? That's awesome. So not one Bruin in the house? I mean, there were like 20 in the morning. One. Thank you, my sister. <laughs> I see you. <laughs> well, I'm honored to be here with y'all this morning. Uh, I'm actually from Bakersfield, California. Any Bakersfieldians in the house? Got a few more? Okay. Um, and so I've been coming to Las Vegas uh, every month since I think May or June was the first time we met Pastor Derek. And uh, every month getting ready for our event. And I have shared this many times. I have absolutely fallen in love with the people here in this area. So thank you for who you are and your hearts and my wife is here with me somewhere in the, in the, in the room. There she is. <clears throat> Her name is Kim. We've been married uh, 31 years. We met at UCLA. She was a, a Hall of Fame gymnast out there when we met. And uh, we have, I have two grown young men, uh, uh, one son who lives in New Zealand, believe it or not. So y'all young parents... Hold on to those babies as long as you can. You never know how far they will go when they grow. So he's in New Zealand doing a great job. He's in the, in the visual effects industry doing a bunch of movies. And I uh, have another old, uh, older son, 26 years old, who's a, a, a national championship hurdle, hurdler. And, and he works on a job where he tells us, you can't tell people what I do, Dad. I'm like, okay, all right, I'll keep it secret. So I share all that just to say this. Even though I had a great college career at UCLA and had a very brief stint playing on a few teams in the NFL, and I'm still last when it comes to talent in my own family behind my wife and two kids. And I love them dearly. So let me jump into this message because that is why we are here. That's why we are here, to hear from you, Lord. So we open our hearts, we open our minds, and we invite you, Holy Spirit, to speak however you want to speak. Encourage us, challenge us, convict us, change us, God. Draw us near you and let us hear exactly what you want us to hear for your glory, for our edification, and for the building of your kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 John chapter 4 says this, but the hour is coming and is now here, verse 23, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. As Pastor Derek shared, I work for a ministry called Athletes in Action, and we've been on staff, or I've been on staff for 22 years now. And our first assignment, being on staff with the sports ministry, um, uh, they placed us in Miami. We were the chaplains for the Miami Dolphins. I did that for about 10 years. I was very young in ministry, probably in my 30s, but excited about the opportunity. Really felt the Lord called us to become missionaries and serve down there. And, um, and so I was doing my best to get as many of the guys involved in the weekly ministry and the, and the one-on-one discipleship uh, sessions. And my wife and I led couples ministry there, so we were trying to get them all involved and, and see the ministry grow and have great impact. Well, back in the early 2000s, uh, when the NFL started playing teams over, playing games over in London, the Dolphins and the Giants were the first two teams to receive that honor. And I remember our owner, our team owner, Mr. Wayne Heisinger, was so excited to be, to be the first that he chartered two planes to take as many people as he could. One massive plane so all the players, every coach could come and bring their spouse with them. And then he chartered his own plane of about 30 or so people where he brought his family members and his friends and his other special guests as well. And he got us there like three days early and treated us to a, a blast, a, a fun time around the city, experiencing some of the, some of the uh, um, tourist attractions, and that was great. But I was focused on chapel service because my thought was, man, all the wives are here. So that means there's a chance that more players will come to chapel who normally don't come. And I was also told that because Mr. Heising is bringing his guests, he wanted me to have two chapel services, one for the players at night like we normally do, but then add another one on Sunday mornings for our owner and all of his guests. And so I was like, man, this is my chance. I got to do a great job. I got to preach a sermon that's going to really draw them in. I got to win them over. I got I to perform well. And so I begin, this mess. I begin to prepare and we get over there and First chapel starts Saturday night, and I start preaching this message. And while I'm teaching, here's what I'm hearing in my head. This is horrible, Corwin. You're doing a miserable job. You are failing, Corwin. Look at them. Look at that guy. He's sleeping over there, Corwin. (laughs) You're ruining your chance, Corwin. There are going to be less people in Bible study next week now, Corwin. So the end of the chapel, chapel ended, and, and I remember everybody kind of falling in and falling out, and, and I'm shaking hands all dejected, <laughs> you know, and, and they all leave the room, and I'm standing there with my wife, and I, I told her this was, I, I messed up, Kim, you know, and I was so devastated, and I was actually angry, y'all. I was angry. I took that message, I balled it up and I threw it in the trash can. Never will I preach that message again. But I had another problem, because that was a message that I had planned for the next morning for Mr. Heisinger and his guests. <laughs> so I go back to my hotel room, and I get my computer out, and I started trying to figure out, okay, I got a message somewhere. Let me see what else I can prepare. 
And I started trying to make that happen, and I can't remember all the details, but I do remember I left my computer cord at, at, in, in the States, and the, and the uh, business center in the hotel was closed. It was like overnight. I'm trying to figure out how to prepare another message, and I could not get another message ready in time. I stayed up all night long. I'm sitting in that chapel room, 6 o'clock in the morning. Chapel is about to start at 7 in the morning, and I have nothing. And I look down <laughs> in that trash can. I guess it didn't get emptied last night. I reached down in the trash can, pulled out my message. And I prayed that no one would show up for chapel. <laughs> About 6.50, the head security comes in the room, and, and he's, you know, he's everywhere the owner is. He's there ahead preparing, making sure everything's safe. I'm like, okay, maybe it's just Stu. Maybe just me and him, that'd be good. But then the owner and his wife comes in, Mr. and Mrs. Huizenga. And I'm like, oh, I guess it's happening. So <clears throat> then all of a sudden, more people start coming in and more and more and more. And the room is overflowing. The security guard is scrambling into other rooms, drop, bringing chairs in. And I'm sitting at the front podium just, just laughing like, wow, you have a sense of humor, God. You know, <laughs> this is kind of not right, you know. And sure enough, I delivered the message. And you know what God did. He moved so mightily. It was, it was just what the people needed to hear, and God was speaking to them, and it was just a wonderful, wonderful time we had together. So what was the lesson in this experience for me? What do you think God was teaching me? Or better yet, what was God exposing in me? Who said, said that again? Lean on him. You know what else he said? It ain't about you, Corwin. It's about me and my word. And I choose to speak who, to who and how I choose to speak. Your job is just to faithfully deliver my word. It's not about you. According to Luke chapter 3, when Jesus first began his public ministry, he first went to be baptized by John the Baptist. You know the story. Well, this baptism experience put on full display the undeniable reality, the undeniable intimacy, and the undeniable unity of the Trinity. When Jesus, God the Son, ascended up from the water... And then God the Spirit descended onto Jesus like a dove. And then God the Father spoke from heaven, proclaiming, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And what a wonderful public authentication of Jesus' relationship to the Father and the Spirit. Well, right after this experience, Scripture says that Jesus went into the desert to fast and pray for 40 days, being tempted by Satan himself during this time. 
Now, we don't know how many temptations were thrown at Jesus during this 40-day period, but we know that Matthew 4 tells us about at least three that Satan used at the end of Jesus' time of fasting. The first two temptations, Satan takes Jesus back to that precious, authenticating moment of Jesus' baptism. He takes Jesus back there and he says this word, these words, if you are the son of God, then command these stones turn to bread. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of this temple. I believe the first half of these two temptations reveals quite a bit about the anatomy or the makeup or the structure of all of Satan's temptations on God's people. First, it says, if, if you are the son of God. He starts by casting doubt on Jesus' identity and on God's truth. Now, it should come at no surprise that Satan starts there. He starts his attack there, his identity and God's truth. Our identity is the foundation upon which everything else is built. And have you noticed this massive identity crisis we have in our nation? Now, Satan knows that he wins big time when our identity is found in anything or anyone other than the one who created us. He knows this. Because then it's only a matter of time before everything else that we've built comes crashing down. Also with this attack, Satan is trying to persuade Jesus to question the thing that God has clearly spoken. Things that were settled before the beginning of time. It's the same tactic he performed on Eve in the garden. Did God really say you shouldn't eat? Maybe for you and I, maybe you hear, did God really say you should love your enemies? I mean, really, sir? Did he really say you should pray for those who persecute? I mean, really, turn the other cheek? Really, you know? I remember when I was writing this message, <laughs> right at this point, God spoke to my heart and said, Corwin, you have someone you need to pray for, don't you? I'm like, oh, Yeah. I got to pray for that dude again, that joker, yeah. <laughs> Don't you hate it, Pastor, when God makes you uh, actually live what you preach, you know, right in the moment? I love it. Thank God for that, actually. <laughs> if Satan can get you and I to replace God's emphatic periods with satanically inspired question marks, and he succeeds at cracking open the door to usher in his greater lies and deceptions, just like he did with Eve. The second part, if you are the son of God, the son of God, you better believe that Satan despises the family structure. He despises the family, period. He despises anything that resembles deep intimacy, especially the intimacy shared between a father and his child. If you look at the state of our nation today, the statistics, the statistics show that the absence of engaged fathers 
is a direct, has a direct impact on the, the violence and the depression, the incarceration of our kids, the anger, the instability that is occurring in our home. So men, let me hear you again. How excited are you about the Bible study for men to help us become better fathers? God is is not just the almighty creator, y'all. He's also our loving and caring daddy. Do you know him that way? Do you think of him in that intimate sort of way? Is he your daddy? You know, I grew up in uh, in Bakersfield, as I shared, uh, back then in the, I guess, 70s and early 80s. You know, it was just a small country town. You know, I'm just a country boy myself, right? And my dad, love him to death. He's still around. He was five foot nine, just skinny, kind of little man. But he was the loudest person in the Rose Bowl on my game days. I mean, he would show up and the crowds would literally be like, oh, I hope he's not sitting next to me. And he wouldn't just show up just any old way. He would bring this long, massive cowbell, right? And, and, and he didn't go to the student store to buy my jersey to represent his son on the field. He went to the secondhand store, found a yellow windbreaker, bright fluorescent yellow windbreaker, ironed on my name and these little felt letters and my number on the back of this jersey, and he would come in and just have a ball. Y'all, let me tell you, I remember being on the field in the middle of a game, 100,000 people in the Rose Bowl. I'm in the huddle, right? I'm the tight end, so I'm standing behind the offensive line. We're looking at our quarterback, so Troy Aikman is calling the play. The center is right in front of me, Frank Cornish, the team clown. He turns around, middle of the game, and says, Corwin, is that your dad up in the stands? Turn around, just want to play, man, just want to play. I'm so embarrassed, right? Now, unless you think I'm an exaggerator, sometimes pastors exaggerate, I got some evidence about this. Yeah. So, so, so that game, we play the game, that, that Monday I'm in the locker room and, and uh, I'm getting dressed and Frank Cornish, our center, walks up to me in front of everybody, you know, and he, he looks at me, he has this big goofy grin on his face and he says, country Corwin. <laughs> and that was my nickname the next three years. Thanks to my dad. You know what? Your dad loves you like that. Your dad is the loudest one cheering you on from the stands. He don't care who's listening. He doesn't care what people think about him. He is for you. My dad used to, at the the end of the games, when the players would walk up the tunnel to uh, greet their parents, He'd be up there doing the running man, y'all. We had just lost. It didn't matter. He's doing the running man, shouting, whoop, whoop, whoop. Your God is whoop, 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 whoop. 
on you. Right? Now, if you don't know him that way, there are probably some reasons. One could be because of the wounds that you still have because of your earthly father experience you had with him. Can I encourage you to embark on a journey as difficult as it might be to, to deal with some of those father wounds or all those father wounds? Right? Process those, get with some counseling, whatever you got to do, because those wounds could be hindering you from experiencing the kind of intimacy your heavenly father wants you to experience with him. Okay? Don't let anything hold you back from being able to, be, from being able to call God your daddy. Don't let nothing stop you from that. It's so important. Thirdly, not, it says, if you are the son of God. If you are the son of God. Not just the son of the dude in the sky, the son of the big guy upstairs, right? The son of the omnipotent, omniscient, the omnipresent God, the all-powerful one. As his sons and daughters, we have rights and privileges, power, and authority over the evil one because we're related to God. We have rights and privileges, power, and authority over this evil corrupt system that we dwell in because of our relationship with God. We have rights and privileges, power, and authority over our own sinful desires and our own flesh because of our relationship with God. We are more than conquerors, y'all. Of course, Satan wouldn't want us to understand this. Of course, he wouldn't want us to get it. For he knows that he won't stand a chance if God's children actually start living victoriously in unity with one another, on our knees together as one in prayer, accessing the very throne of God, the very power of God on, the, on behalf of the nations. I'm loving seeing the diversity in this room, y'all. I'm, I'm loving it. The world... When people who are different from one another can come together... Serving God together, loving one another, investing in each other, supporting and encouraging one another. The world is like, what is going on? They take it and twist it and do other crazy things with it. But the church is the place where God wants to display his glory through our unity. The church has to be the one to get this right in the right way. Because of God. If you are the son of God, he states. So I want to suggest to you that the, the anatomy, again, the, of every temptation, right, the structure of every temptation that comes, true, that comes to followers of Christ is a direct assault on God's truth and our identity in Christ on the intimate relationship we have to enjoy. 
and on the authority we possess as children of the king. Every temptation falls into these categories. So after Jesus masterfully resists these these first two temptations, I love how he did that. He, He fought the enemy back with the word of God, and I love that, the sword of the Spirit. Now, I can't help but think that Satan becomes totally exasperated at this point and becomes totally frustrated as well at at, at his failure to to tempt Jesus in any way that Satan finally tips his hand with the third temptation, revealing what his ultimate goal had really been all along. He takes Jesus to a high mountain and says, look here now, Jesus. That's my interpretation. (laughs) I will give you all of these kingdoms and their glory if you would just bow down and worship me. There it is. That's what he was really going after all along. Don't think for a second that Satan cared about Jesus making some magic biscuits out of rocks. He didn't care about Jesus performing some kind of a magical levitation act for the people. No, he wanted to be worshipped. That was his goal. Why does God command us to worship him and him alone? Why do you think that is? And why does Satan crave worship so much that he would have the unmitigated audacity to attempt an appropriation of worship from Jesus? I mean, come on, he knew who Jesus was, and that still didn't matter. He wanted to be worshipped. Worship is defined as the supreme honor or veneration given in either thought, word, or deed to a person or a thing. Now, there will always be worshipers because God designed us to be creatures who worship. It's in our nature. The problem comes when our worship gets misdirected or misappropriated. And we begin to assign the supreme honor and veneration to other things and other ones that don't meet the criteria of supreme. Now, I grew up thinking that I was a worshiper of Christ. I was baptized at a very young age, five years old, went to church every Sunday, every Wednesday night. I memorized Bible verses. I knew all the answers in in Sunday school and vacation Bible school. I wasn't just in the youth choir, y'all. I was the youth choir director. I was a well-churched kid. I was a model church kid on Sundays. Monday through Saturday, not so much. I lived for me. And what I wanted more than anything in life was pleasure and popularity. I wanted everyone to know me and like me and be impressed by me. I wanted everyone to be, I wanted their approval of me. And so I performed to receive all of that because I was a pretty good guy and excelled in sports and got pretty good grades in high school growing up. And lots of opportunities came to experience pleasure and popularity on scholarship. And it wasn't until my hypocrisy was exposed in college And I realized that I wasn't really a true worshiper of God at all. I realized that I had really been worshiping my own little trinity 
called me, myself, and I. My reputation, my feelings, my achievements, my appetites, my stuff, my pleasures. Still to this day, I must choose to die to all of these things daily that clamor for first place in my life. I must bring them all under submission to Christ. And I remember being convicted in this, on campus in this meeting I had with a teammate and changed my life. And I bowed my head with this teammate of mine. I prayed, God, I don't see how I can fully live for you like I know I'm supposed to, <laughs> but I know it's the right thing to do. So please help me. And then Sundays in church, <laughs> pastor would give an altar call, and I remember standing up and walking forward during this altar call. Now, keep in mind, my God was me. I was so worried all my life about how I look and what people might think. It was a huge step for me to step out in front of all these people and go forward and publicly declare that I want to surrender my life to Christ. Now, I know that I might be preaching to the choir, but I think we all would agree that if Satan tempted Jesus with the offer of worshiping him, then we would be foolish to think that followers of Christ are exempt from this kind of an attack. I think today, however, Satan is a little more subtle with us. Let's look at an example of this in Scripture. John 3. John chapter 3. It says, After Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, after this, sorry, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So John the Baptist had been on the scene for some time already, preaching a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. John's sole purpose for preaching was to prepare the way for Jesus, the coming Messiah. John had become popular, and his fame spread throughout the entire region. And John's disciples were apparently basking in all this new attention, and they were enjoying their newfound prestige and success, and they had become celebrities. Then Jesus enters the scene and begins his own public ministry right alongside of John's ministry. So for a short time, 
the public ministry of John the Baptist overlapped the public ministry of Jesus the Christ. I mean, can you imagine the buzz on that Judean countryside, all the excitement, the hordes of people filled with excitement because of the popularity and the powerful preaching of these two young preachers? But then the unthinkable happened, at least for John's disciples. Their crowd started dwindling. So here they are. Oh, yo, yo, John, um, remember that dude that uh, you pointed out to us last week? Well, John, the brother pulled up right down the river, and uh, he's baptizing people, and John, everybody's going to him now. What are we going to do, John? We're losing business. Our popularity rating has been plummeting ever since this joker showed up on the scene. And maybe we should rebrand ourselves, come up with a new gimmick, or, or tweak our messaging to win them back. This is the problem, John. Can you hear a familiar frustration and exasperation in their concern? John's disciples were actually jealous of Jesus' ministry. And they complained about the fact that Jesus was capturing the attention that they once enjoyed. Now, at first, I found this very hard to believe. How could they miss the whole point of their purpose? John had already told them that he wasn't the Messiah, that he was preparing the way for the Messiah. How could their agenda all of a sudden become self-serving? But then when I think about it, and I've seen this so many times serving as a chaplain on NFL team, when man receives praise and worship from man, if left unchecked, all that praise and worship from man, if left undeflected, can poison our minds and, per and, and pervert our perspective. And now becoming the center of attention becomes the motivation for what we do. Maintaining power and control becomes a new goal. The motives of our messaging changes from pointing people to our only hope in Christ to increasing our own profile or building our own brand. They got it twisted, didn't they? Because man cannot handle worship. We are not designed to handle and receive worship. We are just flesh and blood, flawed people, flawed bodies. We deteriorate, sorry young folk, we deteriorate every single day. I had a football body a long time ago, y'all. It's gone. Even though I had a very brief career in the NFL, was, when I, since I turned 40 years old, since then, I've had two, I have knee surgery. I've had two major shoulder surgeries. I have, I've had two hip replacements. I got a titanium disc stuck in my neck right now, replacement disc. And now I go to bed wearing this nose contraption connected to this long tube to a machine at the side of my bed. How you like me about now, baby? As we see here in this passage, even ministry leaders can be affected by this craving. 
Our under-shepherds today are not immune to the seduction of ministry. And neither are you and I. People who work or, or engage in work that absolutely changes lives for the better, that blesses people, that, that helps people become set free. And they're going to express that appreciation to you and I for your help and your investment. And, and that's awesome. Praise God for that. But we've got to be careful not to bask in the appreciation expressed by, by men for the work that we are called to do from the Lord. Don't bask in that. Deflect that sincerely to God. Don't you love John's response to his disciples? Fathers, praise God that his impact is influencing, expanding. God in heaven has ordained it to be so. In case you haven't noticed, I'm rejoicing about this. This is his time. He must increase and I must decrease. My friends, this is not just good advice from a young preacher who lived 2,000 plus years ago. This is the divine order of things. You and I must decrease so that Jesus can increase in and accomplish more through our lives. That's God's plan for you and me. <clears throat> now, I love a good Western movie. Any, any Western movie fan, any cowboy fans? I, I, I grew up in Bakersfield, right, country town. I just got into Western movies. Anybody watch a Clint Eastwood marathon? Ever watch that? I know them all by, by heart. Anybody ever watch a Clint Eastwood marathon on uh, Thanksgiving Day? Please, somebody, just because my wife is over. One, okay, I'm not the only one, baby. Uh, two, it wasn't just me. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm still paying for that, y'all. It was, it was our first Thanksgiving, too, by the way. Yeah, yeah, pretty sad. Anyway, well, one of my favorite Westerns of all time is a movie called Tombstone. Ah, yeah, we've got some Tombstone fans in the room. Now, it's not a family movie, so I can't recommend it. But it's very well written, and the acting is just phenomenal. The main character of the show is Wyatt Earp, played by Kurt Russell. But for those of you who've seen the movie, who was the main, really the star of the show? Doc Holliday. You know it, right? Some of you are going to see the movie, aren't you? Yeah. Played by Val Kimmer. Didn't, you, didn't he have the best one-liners? I'm your Huckleberry. Should I hate him? My favorite, my favorite line was uh, in, in the bar scene where he says, I stand corrected, Wyatt. You're an oak. <laughs> I guess you got to see the movie. Anyway, now it's not so much nowadays, but early on in Hollywood, in any given movie, you had one star who was surrounded by a supporting cast. The movies were created with the purpose of helping the star's role become prominent and preeminent. The supporting actors and actresses were to perform their roles in such a way to make the star shine. Well, according to these standards, then Tombstone was a poorly written movie because a member of the supporting cast outshined the star. 
in the same way, Jesus has been given a starring role on this earth. Those of us who have a relationship with him, we are the supporting cast. Our assignment is to live in such a way as to help the star shine. Could it be the case that Jesus is not the Academy Award winner in many people's lives because of the lackluster effort, the lack of surrender, the lack of obedience by his supporting cast? Or maybe there are just too many Doc Holiday wannabes in the faith, happy to have people more impressed with them than they are with the star of the show. One of my former coworkers likens this to photobombing Jesus. Where we paint this beautiful picture of God, of Jesus and all his work, and we, we tell folks, look at him, look how awesome he is, look at all the things we, he's done, and we paint this beautiful picture for everyone, and then we insert ourselves in the background. <laughs> and the onlooking world is confused as to who they should be paying more attention to in that picture. Jesus or you? I heard a preacher shout decades ago, you are not the star. Stop wanting center stage. There is room for only one star on this stage called life. And Christ deserves all of the attention, all of the moments, every ounce of glory, every hand type of praise, every wave of our hands in adoration of him, every tear of joy shed, for his suffering and his sacrifice on that cross. Do you really think there's room for somebody else on the stage next to him? Do you want to stand next to Jesus on the cross? All the applause, all the glory, and all the praise goes to him and him alone. Now, make no mistake about it. The enemy still craves our worship. And as long as you and I don't live, keyword live, in such a way that gives the supreme honor and veneration to the supreme one, then his craving is being satisfied. And we have succumbed to the third temptation. So instead, let's be people who look for ways to serve others, serve with others who are different from us. There are many more reasons to unify than there are to divide, church. Many more reasons to unify. And so I implore us to look for opportunities to lay aside our differences, our petty differences, and engage in kingdom work together. Jesus will sort it out all in the end. We don't have to do all the sorting out ourselves now. Let him take care of that in the end. And as I close, Let me just remind us, because of our secure identity in Christ and the undeniable truth of his word, because of the intimate relationship we have with our father, our daddy, and because of the authority we hold as children of the almighty king to be more than conquerors, may we advance on our knees in humility and in prayer and in faithful, courageous obedience, and let's keep Satan totally frustrated and exasperated 
because our worship is being directed to the only one who qualifies as supreme. Amen? Amen. Amen.